righty or left hand? Left. Oh, sorry, leave this on the right hand side. <laughs> Sometimes my brain functions that way. Not always. Very smart. <laughs> much and thank you so much for your hospitality and uh, thank you to everybody a lot of work came in, went into uh, managing to put me down to come here with a special shout out to um, Rabbi Mrs. Fox Brenner but I, I, I've been uh, already embraced by the southern hospitality it's real it's real you know um, okay so um, this could go in different directions but I was asked to focus on, in terms of um, speaking to you as a group of educators, is some of the changes in parenting, where um, you know our rabbis tell us that the key to educating children 
is to find the balance between love and limits, okay? Between the left hand pushing away while the right hand brings closer. And that was said literally thousands of years ago in the Talmud, but it's also exactly what psychological research shows about authoritative parenting, authoritative teaching. All love, no limits, kids grow up to be spoiled and overindulged. All limits, no love, rules without relationships equals rebellion. So I'm going to share with you a few points, um, talk a little bit, hopefully, about um, some thoughts about motivating kids. But let me start with the story of Dr. Sam Oliner. I'll lead off with Sam Oliner. It goes like this. Sam Oliner, when he was 10 years old, he was living in a small town in Poland in the early 1940s. By the way, I'm fresh off of a plane from Warsaw. Just spent um, uh, an incredibly intense week um, working with um, uh, and meeting and speaking to the leaders of the uh, Jewish community uh, throughout Europe. Um, and hearing stories, this is in the shadow, shadow of the Holocaust. But this, this first story is actually took place not far from where I spent the last week. So it goes like this. Sam Oliner was 10 years old. And on one horrific day in his small town in Poland, the Nazis lined up his parents, his grandparents, his siblings, his entire town, anybody he ever knew in his entire life, and machine gunned them to death. In the chaos, he escaped. And he wanders off to a small farmhouse on the outskirts of town. And he knocks on the door. And miraculously, the two owners of the house, non-Jews, took him in, and at tremendous peril to their own lives, raised him and protected him and treated him like one of their own for the entire war. Had they been caught, not only would they have been killed, but everybody they knew would have been killed in retaliation. Nazis were merciless in terms of going after people like this. And after the war, he had an uncle who survived. The uncle takes him to um, the five towns in New York. He was raised in that area. And he, he grew up to get a PhD in sociology, married a woman with a PhD in sociology, and he dedicated his entire life to answering a basic question, one of the key questions I wanted to talk to you about, which is, what does it take to raise a moral giant? What does it take to raise a moral giant? Because I often thought about it. What if it was me on the other side of that farmhouse door? I can't imagine I would have had the moral courage to put the lives of everybody I knew at risk. I just, I just can't imagine. What, is, what does that take? So he and his wife, who also had a PhD in sociology, go to Europe. And they interview every single righteous Gentile they could find asking them the basic question, tell us about your childhood. Tell us about what allowed you to do what you did. Now, all of them, 100% of them, didn't understand the question. 
They literally didn't understand the question. What? How could we could do what? What do you What do you mean? You 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 saved me at at incredible peril, and he, the, the The answer was invariably the same. But But I, I don't understand. How could I not? But listen to this. You want to know what well, one of the core ingredients of becoming a morally phenomenally great person, it's as these future righteous Gentiles were growing up, it was all about how their parents handled their mistakes. You don't think about it. You don't think about what an incredibly powerful force of education takes place when we handle our students' errors. Listen to what would happen in one of these homes. One of these homes, he found there was tremendous moral clarity. Everybody knew exactly what was expected of them. The children growing up in these homes, they knew exactly what was right and what was wrong, not from preaching and not from nagging and not from lecturing, but from calmly believing that the child was gonna, in instill and imbibe and somehow incorporate those core values. But then when they messed up, you can't go through life without messing up. When they violated the moral code of those families, it wasn't dealt with with guilt induction. It wasn't dealt with with yelling, wasn't dealt with with screaming, wasn't dealt with with criticism. It was dealt with very calmly. Here's what you know is the right thing to do here, right? Let's just review it. Let's just review it. There was tremendous clarity about what was wrong with it. And then, most importantly, let's talk about a reparation process. How do you make it right? Now, the key was, it's not just how you make it right, but it's how do you, how do you fix this? How do you fix this? The, the combination of calmness and clarity and insisting on figuring out a way to go through this, in Hebrew, tshuva process, this, you, you, you fix it, you fix it, okay? The Hebrew word for chait, the Hebrew word for sin is very interesting. It's not that you are evil or you did something bad. It's very different. The Hebrew word for, 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 um, for sin, chait, comes from the word of missing the mark. So it says in the Torah, the archers, of the tribe of Benjamin, they were incredible marksmen. They never missed the mark. Velo yachti, the Hebrew word for faith. They never missed the mark. What that means is when you mess up, okay, you messed up, you got to do over. Let's see if you can get closer to the mark the next time. That's core. What am I getting to with this? I'm getting to with this is that we're living in a generation. I hear this all over. It's all over the Western world. I hear it just as frequently if I speak in South Africa as I will in a couple of weeks or in Australia or in any, any, um, any neighborhood. It's just the Western world thing in our, in our culture, which is that in the balance between love and limits, we become love specialists. And parents sometimes have a hard time recognizing that the way kids grow is from facing their mistakes, facing their, their, um, their mess ups in a sense, and learning how to go from, grow from them. So let me start with 
concept number one, which is the idea of desirable difficulties. And it goes like this. If we could construct a world for our students where they never have to face frustration, or never have to face mistakes, or where they're saved from their mistakes, they're just not gonna grow. They're just not gonna grow. It just, you grow through messing up. Listen to this. In Paris, based on the research I started to share with you, every year they have something called the Festival of Errors, where they celebrate mistakes. They celebrate mistakes, the Festival of Errors, because they found that it's through how you handle mistakes the kids can really learn. Here's some weird facts from educational psychology. If I was showing this to you as a PowerPoint, had we had it in the other building, it would have been on a screen. Can you see it okay here? <laughs> so I'm, on slide, I'm on slide number three. Okay? If I were to show you the PowerPoint, and I were to purposely blur out every third slide, let's say, you would remember those slides better than anything else we went over. When you have to try a little harder to learn something, you learn better. Here's the Hebrew word, going back over the millennia again. Ein adam omed al divrei Torah elim behem. You can't master learning Torah or learning anything else without failure. We learn through failures. We learn through our mess-ups, okay? So um, let me um, tell you the story, just to bring this out a little bit more. The story of Keith Jarrett. Anybody know who Keith Jarrett is? Get extra credit. Okay, this is going to be on the midterm, halfway through the talk. Here's the story, here's the story of a Keith Jarrett, okay? Am I allowed to drink from the bottle? In the South, do you drink from the bottle? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Okay, we're from the Okay, my wife's not here, don't tell her. Left her we left her at home. Okay. Huh? This being, that's okay, that's okay. She's, uh, um, okay, so um, here's the story of Keith Jarrett. Just picture this. And later, later on, you could Google it. Not yet, but wait till after. Okay, it goes like this. In 1975, in Munich, Germany, there was a, um, a concert, a, bi a big concert. And it was for 6,000 people. And the, the um, main performer was um, a man named Keith Jarrett, a leading jazz pianist to this day. Um, it sold out immediately. Very well-known guy. He gets there early the morning of the concert was going to be that evening to try out the piano, uh, the concert piano. He gets there. Now, for some reason, they had put a 19-year-old young woman in charge of preparing the concert. There have been some articles. This is a famous story I'm about to tell you. There have been some, some articles written about her and how she came to be in that kind of a position at such a young age. But she's 19 years old, and she was evidently up to the task. But Mr. Jared comes early, and he starts to practice on the piano, and it's an unqualified disaster. All the keys on the left side have no pads. You can smash down on it, no music. All the keys on the right side, no pads. You can't. You can't. Not, there's not, no, no music comes out. 
The middle keys play music, but out of tune, and you have to really press down very hard. So he tells her, okay, we have to get another piano. You know, go all around town. Let's see. You know, let's look all, all over every neighborhood we could find nearby to see if we could get a concert piano. None was to be had. You can't get a concert-level piano on such short notice. So time's coming. It becomes clear they're not going to be able to get a new piano. So he turns to her and he says, um, we have to cancel the concert. Now, she's barely out of adolescence, okay? And she, you could imagine how destroyed she was. So, um, and he sees that she's like falling apart, like her life's over, it's public humiliation. It's hard enough when you're an adult, but when you're a teenager, forget about it. So, he takes pity on her. And he goes on to perform a concert that to this day is the all-time best-selling music recording in history of any kind and the best record the, the the number one most revered jazz piano recording you could download it just put in Keith Jarrett 1975 concert you hear um, you hear him huffing and puffing because he's pushing down on those keys very hard but the challenge, the impossible challenge, brings out a brilliance in him and a creativity. And he goes into the depths of his greatness and play it. it, it it's, it's haunting and it's magnificent. Okay, you could, you could download, there's a YouTube of this. It's like, it's an incredible thing to see. Keith Jarrett, J-A-R-R-E-T-T, something like that. Jarrett like parrot, okay? So... What am I getting at? What I'm getting at is that the challenge in educating kids today is very often we get tempted to um, make things as simple as we can for them or to um, uh, get pressure from parents to not give them too much work or to not be too frustrated. And that from all of the research I've seen in the area of educational psychology, it's a surefire way to cripple them. You can't reach your potential unless you push up against the limits of what you have to do. If you keep working out at one level, let's say you're always doing every day, you do 20 push-ups, and you don't gradually push yourselves to do five more, 10 more, 20 more, you're just not gonna grow. You're gonna stay at exactly the same level. And it's the same thing with learning, okay? So that's point number one. Let me just say one more thing on, this, on, on what happened um, in Paris. So they had a festival of errors. The um, tech industry picked up on this. And um, they started to have, every year, a huge uh, get-together called FailCon, F-A-I-L-C-O-N, where people come and they compete to... Um, present their failures. And in the Jewish education world, anybody here, um, uh, do you ever apply for the Kohelet Foundation award for, um, for um, uh, the best failure? Okay, so they have an award every year, it's been around for a couple of years now, where you submit an educational program that you tried in one of your Jewish schools that failed. You can't submit for the award if, if it succeeds. 
That's probably a different award. But one that fails, and you explain why it failed and how you're going to do it differently next time. And the winner, uh, the teacher who wins, gets $30,000 cash. None of it goes to the school. Okay, thirty thousand dollars cash to do with what you what you will. Probably you'll donate it right back to the school. I'm sure. But that, that's that's what it is. Okay, um, you, you could uh, Google it. What's the name of that award? Does anybody know the Kohelet Foundation? Or has anybody here ever applied for it? No. Go for it. You're as uh, you're as qualified to get it as anybody. Okay. Do they still have great flavors of Coca-Cola here? That's what I just remembered about my last <laughs> trip. You have the best, isn't this like yeah. where, yeah. 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 And you have like amazing flavors. You take it for granted, because you've known it all, all your life here in Atlanta. <laughs> but this is the place to come for the best Coca-Cola. It's fresh, and it's um, the best flavors. <laughs> right, <laughs> okay. So um, let, me, let me now get into this with a little more detail in terms of recommendations. Any questions yet? It makes sense what I'm saying? I guess, can, can, I, but, uh, can you differentiate between giving like tons and tons of homework, which stresses out kids and like overburdening them in terms of time management and scheduling and overscheduling right. versus causing frustration? Can you, like, yeah, excellent question. So yeah, I might as well go there now. Uh, huh, what? I, I did, I did. So let me let me go there now. I did. So let me let me let me because I was going to get to it later, but now's as good a time as any to to do that. No, I, I asked for it. I literally. <laughs> so um, here's here's uh, the question is, um, you know, how do you find the balance between, um, you know, the, the right kind of work, get, get, finding the right the right balance, not too much, not too little. By the way, the research on homework, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is, um, is homework um, definitely has some very serious benefits from middle school on up. Um, the research that I'm familiar with on the value of homework in elementary school, okay, is not so clear. I'm sure you're, you're aware of that. It's not so clear. And um, you know, it, it's it's a complicated area. Actually, it happens to be that uh, the copy of this PowerPoint has a link in the electronic version that you can, I'll, I'll make it available to you. But um, if I'm if I'm reminded to, I'll send it. And I don't know how you electronically distribute stuff, but there's a link that's a review of the literature on homework, and and the the, the literature that we're talking about. Let me let me just talk about that for a minute, in terms of um, in terms of um, the cost of too much academic pressure, okay? The cost of too much academic pressure is obviously you have to find the golden mean. Kids can't learn if, they're, if they don't have a break, if they don't have a place to clear out their head. You need, you, you need to, in order to, um, in order to maximize creativity and learning, you have to have some time to veg out. You can't be in the state of continuous partial attention, always paying attention to this with part of your brain, and we can't. You have to be able to clear out the cobwebs sometimes. And all the recent studies are showing is that in order for kids to grow um, in a variety of areas, they need stillness. And they need to find a place where they could pull back. And the golden mean is what you go for. You need a certain amount of work 
but you also need to balance it with time for creativity and time for um, for peace and time to just daydream. We need all of that. We we need all of that according to the research. Okay. Um, so let me let me move on now to some specific recommendations on motivation, and then I'm happy to talk about. Um, I'm I'm happy even to make it into a question and answer period. There are different places to to take this. Let me start though with a couple of core recommendations. Number one. Um, the work of Dr. Angela Duckworth, who won a MacArthur Foundation Award. She's a professor at University of Pennsylvania um, um, in their um, uh, clinical psychology program. And she's um, done fascinating research on how to motivate kids. And one of the recommendations she makes, which is right up the alley of what we're talking about, is on anticipating obstacles. So I'm gonna tell you a, a quick vignette on how I use this, okay, or how I experience this, just to make it a little bit more right hemisphere, you know, instead of me just sort of like uh, going through dry recommendations. And it goes like this. Um, we, um, I'm, I'm a professor in, in um, one of the hats I wear as a professor in one of the doctoral programs at Yeshiva University. In, um, in uh, you know, in different areas of mental health, but also in Jewish education. So they um, gave our faculty um, fellowships at Columbia University to get like an advanced certificate in how to teach online. And at the end of getting that certificate, the capstone project, at the very end, after about a year or so, a year and a half, was they told us that we had to implement the techniques that we learned, but what they asked us to do is think of three obstacles that you expect to encounter when you implement what you learned with the population you're working with. In my case, it happened to have been bringing it to rabbinical students who aren't necessarily that adept in technology, necessarily. And they said, think of three obstacles you're gonna hit and then a plan for the obstacles. That doesn't seem to be such rocket science. And I didn't even understand why they were making a big deal out of it, but it was transformative. Because as I started to implement the project with these rabbinical students, every obstacle I predicted came true because they were, they were easy to anticipate. And it was such a different experience. When I hit the obstacle that I had predicted Instead of getting upset and getting frustrated and saying, forget it, this isn't going to work, and that whole program we took at Columbia was a waste of time, instead, I said to myself, oh, um, this is exactly what, I, uh, what, what we had predicted. What was the plan? It went from a place of being upset, you know, a visceral, angry or frustrated reaction to the frontal, prefrontal cortex, where planning lives, where perspective taking lives, and it was a whole other experience. So this is what Angela Duckworth says helps in terms of promoting grit. She says, um, you focus, first of all, on your goals and dreams. You get your kids, I'm gonna to get to that in a minute, sort of the importance of that. We're almost there. But what she says is she um, basically, I'll give an example. As she's preparing kids to study for a major college entrance exam, right? 
Here, do people take the ACTs, the SATs? What do they do here in Atlanta? Huh? They're both. Let's say you're preparing for the SATs. So what she does is she has them mentally visualize their hopes and desires for the future while contrasting this image with potential roadblocks they might encounter on that path. Okay? So she incorporates that into the plan. Before studying for um, you know, their SAT prep, prep class, they're asked to write about their goal of getting high grades on the exam, as well as two obstacles that could get in the way of realizing that goal. They're then asked to develop a plan for dealing with each of the imagined difficulties that were encountered. And relative to a control group, um, they, they did very significantly better on the test. Now that may seem almost like simplistic, but it's the power of not just stillness, but of taking a step back, getting in touch with your goals. You know, in, um, in, uh, when Jacob, when Yaakov was preparing his family and his army for the fateful encounter with his brother, who had possibly murderous intentions against him. So he tells him, get ready to address the following three questions. Who are you? Where are you going? And what are you going to do with what you have? Have Three core questions we have to answer in our marriages, we have to answer in our lives. Who are you? Where are you going? And what are you going to do with your strengths? What are you going to do with what you have? Okay, to apply it in a little bit of a looser kind of way. When you get kids to take a step back, I mean older kids, you know, this is probably much more appropriate for middle school and high school because when you get them to take a step back and think of the bigger picture, what's behind all this? Why do you want to do it? The research shows it gets them more motivated. They start, and I, if I asked each of you to spend 20 minutes now writing about your fantasies and your goals for the best possible outcome for your life personally and professionally over um, the next 10 years. And I guess you do it today, tomorrow before Shabbos, Saturday night, and Sunday. 20 minutes. Don't worry about the grammar. Don't worry about making any mistakes. Just, just write away. Write it and write it and write it. And then um, that's all that you're asked to do. Here's what the research shows will happen. Two things will happen. Your happiness levels will go up for a couple of months. And because you're getting in touch with who you are. And sometimes we don't do that. And it makes it more likely you'll reach those goals over that long period of time. Okay? It says in Proverbs, it says in Mishle. Without that vision thing, you kind of fall apart. You need vision. You need to think about it. And that's often a key to motivation. Okay, that's a little dry. Let's get to some other stuff. Let me tell you about um, another component of um, motivation. And it has to do with um, the part of motivation that has to do with believing in our students. Believing in our students and believing in our own children. So I'm going to start with the monastery study. Okay? This is from Cambridge. Who was I talking to who was from Cambridge, Rabbi? Okay. This is from, it could be either Cambridge. This is the Harvard University, Cambridge. Okay, got it? Okay, listen to this story. There's a well-known psychologist, clinical psychologist at Harvard. And she um, does the following many years ago. 
there's a monastery that was no longer being used as a monastery, um, you know, in the outskirts of the Cambridge neighborhood. <coughs> she takes the monastery and she makes it look just like the world looked to this group of men who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. The name of the psychologist is Dr. Ellen Langer. So she takes seven men, okay? She t- I'm sorry, eight men. And she has them spend five days in the monastery. These are old men, again, 70s, 80s, and 90s. She says, now, think of yourself over the next five days as being at your prime. You're 40 years old. Think of yourself as being 40. Inhabit the psychological space of a 40-year-old. You're now like a 40-year-old person. That's what we want you to do, okay? Inhabit that psychological space. Treat each other that way. If they had a room on the third floor, nobody would help them with their suitcase because they're 40. Even if they had to do it one shirt at a time. Little by little, they take it up. And they, that's what they did for their five days. Then there was a comparison group of old men that spent the same amount of time in the monastery the following week, but were treated like old men. At the end of the five days, by the way, the, the monastery had black and white televisions, wallpaper the way it used to look when these men were 40. It was, it was, it was time travel, literal time travel. So after the five days, they had independent raiders compare these men to the men who were treated like old men a week later. 100% of the time, independent raiders were able to look at pictures of the men before and after the five-day period. 100% of the time, every raider said, these men look younger. These men look younger. But here's where it gets weird, really weird. After only five days, a group of ophthalmologists gives the men vision exams. Okay, The men are given vision exams. And um, every one of them has significant improvement in their vision. Not forever, but for a couple of months. Um, their manual dexterity improves. Their strength improves. They're different. They turn younger. <coughs> they turn younger. Okay? Temporarily, unfortunately, but they turn younger. And then a newspaper reporter who covered this study, okay, which was later replicated in England and made into a documentary by BBC where they found even more astounding results. So um, the newspaper reporter at the first Cambridge um, experiment says that as the men were waiting on the bus to take them back to Cambridge, they spontaneously um, um, started a game of two-hand touch football. I had to bring football into it since uh, I'm in Atlanta. Okay? So that's my first football reference. Throughout Shabbos, I'm going to like sneak in football references, uh, which I couldn't do when I was in Warsaw. Okay? So it's like, I used to have to talk about soccer instead, okay. which they call football. Okay, so, um, okay, so that's, that's interesting stuff. Next, okay, along the lines of expectations. Because this is, this is how do you motivate kids in part? You believe in them, when, when you believe in them. Next comes a study that many of you, or a story that many of you heard of, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna review it with you because it's bringing out the main point I'm getting to on this aspect of motivation. Clever Hans, genius horse. In the late 1800s, 
on a farm in Germany, there was a horse that was a genius in math. You could ask Clever Hans, you, you know this, right? You could ask Clever Hans any question in math, no matter how advanced, and Hans patiently taps out the answer. If the answer was 42, taps 42 times. If the answer was 10, he tapped 10 times and stopped. Even if the answer was 319, 319 and stop, and it could be the most advanced mathematic questions, it became a phenomenon around Europe. People were coming all over to the farm that Clever Hans lived on, and it was destroying the life of the farmer who couldn't farm, because <laughs> there were hordes of people coming from everywhere. The psychologist of the day hears about this, and he figures if this is true, psychology has to totally reconsider the um, the um, uh, basically the, the the thinking the thinking of the time on animal versus human intelligence. He goes to the farmer, knocks on the door, says, "Please, can I hang out with your horse?" And the farmer says, "Please, if you could figure out what this is about, I'll be eternally grateful to you. This is destroying my life." Psychologist starts to test Clever Hans, and you can't get him out. You can't get him out. Okay. Um, he's a genius. He's a genius. Until the psychologist gets the answer. I love stories where the psychologist is a hero. Listen <laughs> to what they do. They take a screen and put the screen between Hans and the questioner. Now Hans can't get any question right. Why is that? Who could guess? Right. What are horses? Horses can't do math. They could read nonverbal. So a look of expectation would come up. If the answer was 34, at 34, the pupils of the questioner would subtly widen. His or her skin color would subtly change. Their breathing, the questioner's breathing patterns would change. Ways we give cues without even knowing it. And he would stop. Think about how we do that to our students. Think about how we do that to our own children. When we believe in them, they know it. And when we don't know, it doesn't mean we believe in them always, but we have to find an area in what they're doing, an area of uniqueness that we could believe in, okay? And that's, that's I think, a very, you know, very important point. And it's not so easy. It's not so easy. Kids pick up on our nonverbal, and it's a key component to motivation. Does this all make sense? Yes? Yes, please. Children and people need to believe in themselves. Lots of studies have shown that if you tell a group of girls and boys that they are better at math than average, they do better on the test yeah. than the ones who are told that they're not so good. Right, exactly. And there's, there's that fascinating study. So it's, it's, if you believe in the child, it's not that you believe in the child, it's you are giving the child permission or incentive Believe right, right. I hear what you're saying. So you're saying that it's all about creating a space that allows them to find a way to, to have confidence, self-confidence. I'll, I'll, I'll quote Rabbeinu Tzadok of Lublin. This is going back over, over uh, quite some time, right? Here's what he said, and it's exactly that point. Kishem Shetzarach Adam Lahamin Bahashem Yisbarach just like we teach our children to believe in God, 
so too do we need to believe, teach them to believe in themselves. Ratzalomar, Yesh lahakadosh baruch hu esekimo. God cares about us. Sheinenu poel batel shebein laila haya uvein laila avad. We're not insignificant beings. Here one day and gone the next. And it's that's the that's the bumper sticker. That's the bumper sticker. Is to teach kids not only to believe in. Not only do we believe in them, but to believe in themselves, as you said so aptly. And they see it. They know it. That's the Pygmalion in the classroom, right? You know, the famous study. They give a teacher um, a class, that, and, and, and um, the teacher's told, you have the gift of class this year. You won the jackpot. So this class is pre-tested to make sure they're the most average class in the history of education. Exactly average IQs, exactly average educational achievement levels, and by the end of the year, what happens to them? Everybody? They're the gift of class. I mean, you know, there, there's a significant improvement in, in achievement. Okay? So that's, that's that point on belief, and it's not so simple. It means that we have to find, and, and obviously it doesn't mean we believe in something that they're not good at, but we find something, and everybody has something that they're good at, the question is how to find their uniqueness and, and bring it out. Let me tell you the story. Yeah, please. Yeah. Children often compare themselves to their peers, and in a class, you'll mostly have high achieving, middle achieving, and lower achieving. So it's very hard, even if you push a lot into the lower achieving kids, they just are always comparing themselves to the higher ones. Right, hard. right. And it's always, it's so, and what's interesting about that is that. Um, is that it's guaranteed to happen, right? Because there's always going to be somebody who's better than you. So we have to help them develop a self-concept that's based not on comparison to others, but based on an internal sense of, okay, here are my signature strengths. Here's what I'm really good at. And I'm going to talk about this on... um, the last talk on Sunday, we're going to talk about po- happiness and positive psychology. We're going to talk about uniqueness. And we're going to talk about it, but everybody has it. Everybody has it. And the key is how to, how, how to find it and how to fan the flames of that uniqueness and how to use it as a basis for building in other areas. But yeah, we have to be, we have to, I mean, every, no two people are the same. And, and, you know, the problem is, is it's sometimes, sometimes very hard. And by the way, even if you have a gifted class and you have the most gifted kid in that gifted class, I do a lot of work with such kids. They often, even, they're, even if they're the best of the best, you know, they often are not doing so great. You know, you have kids, if you look at the anxiety level and depression level, of the um, you know classes in, in 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 the leading universities in the country, those kids aren't they, those kids have very high levels of anxiety, very high levels of depression, and um, a lot of it is because unless it can't be you can't get your feeling of self worth and self concept based on external uh, comparisons. It has to come from inside. It has to come from finding the inner strength and the inner voice. Or as it's, it says in Jewish thought, the inner tune, Rabbi Nachman said. Everybody has, everybody has a, 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 a unique tune that the job of the educator is to bring, it, bring that alive. It's not easy, but it's there. It's there. Um, let me tell you, um, let, let me see where to take this. Because I see already that um, I have to change channels a little bit. 
You know what I'm going to do? Now, you're a great audience, but this is, um, there's, there's a, it's already, um, it's already, um, I've been going already now for almost an hour. I'm fine with going, but let me, um, let me switch channels a little bit. Should we do just questions and answers? Should I, should I sing for you? <laughs> should I tell you other stories? And what, do you, what are you all looking for? Okay, uh, Rabbi Feldman, you're the expert on uh, on Atlanta audiences such as this. What do I do? Huh? I should ask you questions. I like that. We like our opinions. Our opinions. Our opinions. Please, yes. I was very intrigued by the title of the class about the uh -huh. permissive culture. Yes, yes. Let me talk about that a little more. Okay. So um, um, let, let me let me talk a little bit about the permissive culture and what that's about and where it's coming from. And because uh, I've already talked about some thoughts about how to handle it, but what's it about? So um, it goes like this: every year. Um, um, probably until 1950, in the balance between love and limits, um, most parents were pretty tough. Um, it was much more about the limits and not so clearly about, about the love and the closeness. Okay? Especially during tough times like the Depression, people who came of age uh, before World War II. That's the way the world was. It was a tough world in parenting was preparing kids for a tough existence. Every year from 19, every decade from 1950 till today, in that balance, there's been more and more and more emphasis on the love part and dwindling emphasis on the limits part, like much less emphasis on the limits part. Um, and what that, what that, that is probably about, it's about a number of, it started with Dr. Spock, his parenting book, which was the Bible of its time, and basically um, taught parents, you know, just let your kid get what they, and it was like he, he, he had a pretty indulgent approach, had tremendous uh, impact, but that alone wasn't it. What started to happen is as television came, um, there was a um, uh, presentation of kids as all-knowing, and parents as being a little foolish. There was a gradual erosion of parental authority coming also from the internet, um, coming from digital challenges, so that kids now knew more about the most powerful medium around than their parents did. And there were a number of other interacting factors. But the bottom line is that um, there seems to have been a real shift throughout the Western world that seems to be pushing parents to be less and less comfortable with facing their kids' frustration, okay? Um, in, in, a, in a variety of ways, not in Asian parts, of, not in the Asian communities as much, but certainly in the Western world. And it's, again, it's multi-determined. Do, do people want to throw out some opinions on where it's coming from? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Yes? Colombia, South America, but I'm a European. My grandparents from Europe, so I'm second generation, raised European. Right, okay. And, and I, you know, my culture is I respect my grandparents, I respect my parents, 
and that's the way that I raise my daughters. Uh -huh. and, uh, what I see nowadays is, sorry, excuse me, that I was not afraid of my parents. I, I respect them. And nowadays I feel like I see that parents are afraid of their kids. And what do you think, what do you think is different about this society? Well, well, uh, well the kids, I get called defect and I, I can put you in jail. Right, uh, right. Or, I, or kids threatening to sue, kids right, threatening to call that, Child Protective that's Services. No yeah. You know, I, like, you know, I still kind of, Hashem, I have my parents. I, my father says something to me and I says, okay, papi, no problem. And I don't feel guilty. I don't feel angry. I do it and that's the end of it. My daughters have challenge because I'm, you know, the way that I was raised and my husband helped me. But, I, you know, my, my girls always thank me, says, Mommy, thank you so much for always being home for us at 3.30 in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and believe me, it was hard, you know, and, and I grew up with learning disability, dyslexia, so it was much harder for me in the social cues also. So you have to, like, you know, you have to be a parent. Okay, right. So, so right. And I think we will all agree that you have to be a parent. Yeah. But what shifted is a lot of these, uh, I'll give you an example. On um, online, when parents aren't careful to um, have filtering and monitoring programs for their kids, which many parents aren't, um, kids are exposed to unbelievable kinds of information that erodes at parental authority as well, okay? Because there's a lot of cynicism a lot of denigrating, uh, a lot of denigration, there's a lot of devaluing of, of, of wisdom and authority. Um, so there's those kinds, those kind of factors seem to be part of what's, what's happening. So the internet is a big part of it, um, media is a big part of it, um, and then parents believing that they, their job is to protect their children from any kind of suffering, and any kind of challenge, not realizing that you grow through the challenge. Does that sort of like what we're talking about? Um, yes. So on that, the, the frustration tolerance of my students has plummeted. Right. I, I haven't been teaching that long. Uh -huh. And the, the difference is remarkable and, and distressing because I don't know how... What, what age are you teaching? I'm now teaching middle school and students have no problem telling me but it hurts to think. Right, <laughs> but right. But then why come to school? Right, right, I, mean, right. I don't even know what to do with it. But they're very sincere. They, yeah, they mean it. Yeah, they're very yeah. sincere. Like, very yeah. sincere. So that's the core. The core is, so just to repeat in case you couldn't hear in the back, it's, it's just students telling her in middle school, it hurts to think. And frustration tolerance going all the way, all the way down. So one of the recommendations that, that I think makes sense is there's some evidence that if you t tell kids and you build into teaching kids an understanding that in order to accomplish anything, it's gonna hurt. And the hurting is not a bad sign. The hurting means that's how you grow. And to build it in, let me, let me, just, let me share with you some research on it, okay? Um, here's just, I know, I know it sounds weird to think about because it's not what you're getting, but I'm, I, ha I have to think about, um, about um, some of these, uh, here it is. Um, okay, here, 
Uh, children, here's, here's just a couple, okay, let me just go through a couple of things. Um, children do better when given room to struggle. That's what the research shows. Effortful learning changes the brain, building new connections and abilities. Okay, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go through stuff more formally now. Underlying and highlighting feels like learning but creates false impression that you'll remember. And instead, if you push kids to do retrieval practice and to read a passage of text followed by a test for recall, and there are certain techniques, all that involve a certain amount of active struggle. But what the, um, what the, the, the bottom line of um, some of the research, it's that literally to tell and teach kids um, that, that when you do that, that this is what, this is the way great athletes become athletes. And you're gonna feel frustrated. And when you're feeling frustrated, it just, it means that you're doing it right. And you're gonna learn it better, and you're gonna know it better, and that's the way you're gonna become A, B, C, and D. There's some really well done studies that show that when it's done systematically, kids will start to re reset their expectations. Okay? It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to hurt. And when they're told that and they, they and they change their mindset, it just makes a difference. I know it sounds like a little weird or it sounds like a little but that's but, but that that's capturing the heart of this. It hurts. It hurts. And for us to be able, you know, um, playgrounds. Listen to this. Listen to this little factoid. Uh, you ever notice how playgrounds today are very different than playgrounds were uh, going back 30 years ago or when we were much younger? Okay. So playgrounds are now redesigned so that you can't really hurt yourself, which is a wonderful thing. Okay. But what's fascinating is that as playgrounds became safer and safer in the United States, the number of injuries, serious injuries, on the part of kids in adolescence and in late adolescence has skyrocketed. And using the research design that they're using, they found that what they think was happening was this. In the old days, kids used to test themselves on the old playground equipment. And they'd fall, and sometimes they'd, God forbid, break an arm, or sprain a leg, or whatever. But you know what? They learned how to handle their risk-taking. They learned how to do it in a safe, confined area. When that was robbed, when they were robbed of that, there's evidence that they're now doing it at an older age, when we can't watch them all the time, and when the stakes are much bigger and accident rates have gone all the way up, correcting for everything else. That's just one example. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said. The question is, how do we teach this to parents? And how do we, how do we make parents, how do we engage parents? And that's, that's a real challenge. Yes, in the back? Nobody, none of the men in the back have an opinion? Yes, please. <laughs> to say that, I'd just rather not. It hurts. I, I understand you're raising your expectations for me, but I'd just rather not think you. I mean, that's, that's what you're hearing. Yes. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. So you mean, so the kids head, head on, they're just not, they're, they're just not, they're just not. 
Um, I, so let me hear. Let me hear from. Let me hear from the educators here. What would you do to with the kid who says, "I'd rather not." I'd rather not, and whose parents back them in that. What? That's the follow-up question. Right. Yeah. So what do you do? Bribe them with ice cream. Feedback. Feedback? What do you mean? Like, how did you get better at this? Like, encouragement to keep, you know, whatever you're good at, you got there by struggling. Right. So give them feedback in areas that they have success. And to, to build on it that way. Right, right. Yes. Tom Sawyer method. Tom Sawyer method. And then you get the kids in the class involved. Okay. They see how much fun it is that they join right in. Right, okay. So if you could try that. Yes, please. Maybe um, you're right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you, you gradually gradually move them along that way, and you, it's, it's like a ballet, it's like a dance, a delicate dance. Okay, um, yes? Um, I don't think it's our job always to make them believe in themselves this year to be the best. We have to move them along to where they're ready to one day believe in themselves. Right. I think many times you, you, I have to make the kid be great, and we don't have to. We have to set them up for success. So you have to give them the skills, you have to give them the expectations, you have to give them what? what? Them, well, one day they'll mature on their own, they'll get it. In other words, is every teacher responsible to make them believe to be great and to study? No, no, but, you're, but, but you do your best to create, like I, I hear what you're saying, you're saying you, you have to look at the big picture. So you do what you can with what you have and you provide them with the tools that they need to be able to take the next step towards that. Go ahead, explain. Yeah, they say, nishkalimach. In other words, my job is they shouldn't leave worse than when they came in. <laughs> and some kids in fifth grade, some kids in eighth grade, some kids in both, and some kids in the 20, it hits. But they should leave my room not worse off. And if I believe in them in a good relationship, then one day some teacher or more already will click and will get it. But why not? Why not you? Maybe it's going to be you this year. And it might be. It might be. He's negative. Yeah. If I'm not, if he didn't thrive. Let me tell you a story, okay? Um, when I was going to school, okay, there were um, three kids. Back then, they didn't believe in ADHD. They didn't know any of this stuff. So there were three kids. So we called the bad kids, okay? They were out of control. Out of control. These kids. They were. Um, Constantly, um, you know, getting kicked out of class. Constantly, class clowns. They they just, they didn't sit down. And they were out, out of control. Fine. You have no idea who you're talking about. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so um, these were there were three kids in my class who were like this, and um, we knew what happened to two of them long term. Thinking of the big picture, one is the chairman of the board of that school today. Okay, because <laughs> looking back on it, he was ADHD. A lot a lot of ADHD kids. He needed to. He needed to do his own thing on his own time to show the brilliance that nobody knew he had till he was out of the confines of, of the classroom. And the second has his name on buildings all over the world. He's a very wealthy guy. Also, 
many ADHD, inattentive, disruptive, kids like that have a high, you know, they're, they're very, not all of them, but some of them become unbelievable later on. We never knew what happened to the third. We lost, everybody lost touch with the third. We had heard he had moved to Israel, but we sort of, we just didn't, we just didn't know what happened to him. About three, four years ago, I'm giving a talk in uh, Jerusalem in the Shurin Shul, a parenting talk. And after the talk, there were a line of people, um, you know, who were lining up to ask me questions. And the next guy in line tells me his name, and it's the third guy. <laughs> so I say, I can't believe it. We've been dying to know what happened to you. How are you? What are you doing? And he says, um, he says, he says, oh, I, I, um, I live up north, and he, you know, northern part of the country. So I say, of, of Israel. So I say, oh, what are you doing there? He said, oh, I work, you know, I work, work there. He said, so what, what's your job? What do you do? Everybody wants to know about you. Tell us something. He said, well, I guess, and he named some, a, um, a, a, a mid-sized city in northern Israel. He says, oh, I guess I'm the mayor. Said, oh, wow, okay, fine. But listen to this. I say, tell me how this happened. Every, I'm not letting you go until you tell, tell us your story. Everybody back home wants to know what happened to you. So he said, um, I moved to Israel. He says, you know, I never had much patience. So I started a Moshav Shitufi, a communal settlement. Then I got bored with that, so I moved a little further down. I started another one. And I started a whole chain of settlements in different parts of the northern part of the country. And then we combined them. And as he's talking, I realize what he's telling me. He's the founder of that city. He made, and it was like, he's the Peter Minuet of northern Israel, okay? And I'm feeling like a total failure, you know? There's this guy who started a city in Israel that he's now the mayor of, okay? Now, I, I over the years, you, I, I know, and not every ADHD kid comes out as successful as that. But over the years, your point's a very important point. Over time, many kids whose skill set is not necessarily so easy to, um, it's, it's not so easy to um, uh, connect to that skill set, okay, when they're younger, because it's, it's not, school is for kids with a certain kind of, of abilities. But later on, they could catch fire when, they, when they're able to find their signature strength, which is something that I'm gonna talk about on Sunday. I'm gonna end this section with, with two stories, and then we'll figure out where we'll go, okay? Here's, here's story number one. Story number one is um, in, um, and this, this story is more of a question, okay? Not an easy story, and I'm gonna probably say it again in the course of the weekend because it, it fits with one of my other talks, I was saving it for later, but I'll share it with you, okay? And then you don't have to come to that talk. <laughs> it goes like this. I'm in, um, a, I'm in another hemisphere. I'm in the southern hemisphere. And I go to shul where I'm supposed to be giving um, the talk, the Shabbos sermon. And um, when I walk into the shul, somebody points out um, a famous doctor to me. And they say, oh, you know who that is? That's, uh, I said, of course I know who that is. I take a look at him. I'd seen him on the cover of Time, on the cover of Newsweek many years ago. He's one of the most famous doctors in the world. World famous for certain techniques he's developed. He's just world famous guy. I didn't even know he was Jewish. And there he is in Schultz. I said, oh, that's so cool. You know, and I, I, you know, I even said, this, maybe I'll meet him later. It's amazing. Wow, okay, fine. So I give my speech. 
And um, after, after, after davening, this doctor comes over to me, and he's, uh, there are tears in his eyes. And I think, oh, I, 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 you know, this famous man, I made him cry. That's not a good thing. I'm still guilty. <laughs> so uh, he comes over to me, and he says, can I talk to you privately? He takes me into a corner, and he says, I'm 83 years old. He says, when I was growing up, all I wanted to do was be an architect. That was my dream. My dream was to be an architect. He said, I go down the streets of this city with a little, um, a little uh, pad, notepad, and I'd um, draw and sketch all of the buildings that I was one day going to build to change the skyline of this city. It was my dream. I, I, I dreamed, I, I had dreams about it every night, every waking hour I'd be doing the sketches. It's what, who I was. It was the essence of who I was. I hit the age that I was going to declare myself as, you know, a major in architecture. I was an only child, he said, and my parents said, you will be a doctor. And I told them, no, 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 I'm going to be an architect. They said, architects don't make enough money. You're our only child. We need you to support us at our old age. You will be a doctor. So he said, in those days, we listened. So I became a doctor. He said, I became a doctor. He says, you could ask around. You know, some people will tell you that I have a pretty good reputation, okay? <laughs> so um, then he starts openly crying. And he reaches into his pocket. And he takes out a pad, a notepad. And he shows me. He says, I'm 83 years old. I still walk through the streets of the city. And I sketch the buildings that I now know will never be built. Very sad. But here's, here's the question. I told this story over twice at Jewish medical ethics conferences in the last few years. One in Switzerland, one in, Mon in Montreal. And both times, a group of doctors came over to me afterwards to yell at me. And they said, David, listen. God forbid that he should have been an architect. They said, you know, not thousands, millions of people are alive today because he became a doctor, because his parents made him do that. Do you know how many lives he saved with his techniques and with his brilliant diagnostic skills? And, and he's a, a once-in-a-generation genius in medicine. He said, do you know what a disaster would have been had he been a, an architect? We have architects. We have plenty of beautiful buildings in that city. We don't need it. We needed him. And that's, that's the question, the balance of uniqueness. and follow, So it's a complicated, and I don't have the answer. In Hebrew, it's called a chakira, okay? It's something to think about, get you thinking over the weekend. And when I tell the story over, I'm not going to tell you which talk. That way you'll come to all the talks. <laughs> and whenever I tell it over, you'll yell out the answer, because by then you'll have thought out the answer. So that's story number one. He, he wanted to be. He, he wanted to be an architect. He, he wanted to be an architect. He was still. He still wanted to be an architect. You asked what he thinks or what I think. Oh, you don't. You don't care what I think. Neither do I. Um, it, it seemed to me that he wished he was an architect. That's what it seemed to me. Yeah, whatever. I'm a psychologist. He was an architect. Not 
Oh, that's that's interesting. That's a, that's a reframe. He was an architect of of, of, of people. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Not in his view, because he saw it as showing itself. Right, right. He wanted the buildings. Uh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting. Okay, I like that. That's that's a re- cognitive reframe. Um, let me end. Let me end with this story, and then we could. You're welcome to come up and, and ask me. I, I feel Bailey. It's Thursday night, and you're all looking like it's Thursday night. So, uh, <laughs> so here goes. Um, here goes uh, concluding story. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do the homeless story with you. It's a little bit of a weird story, but it's a story about to me about the incredible importance of the work that you do. And with this, I'll end, okay? Um, number of years ago, I'm invited to go to a homeless conference. I was very excited to speak. Thomas, I was very excited. I thought I'd go to an address somewhere in the middle of Manhattan and hang out with homeless people. What could be nicer? You know, like interesting, not your run-of-the-mill kind of experience. And I get to the address, it's the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom, okay? Um, beautiful hotel in, in the middle of Manhattan, and 400 very well-dressed professionals who specialize in working with the homeless around the country, fine. There are two speakers at the conference on a big dais, on a big platform. Um, I'm one of the speakers, and the other speaker, clearly the main guy, um, you take one look at his bio, and it was unbelievably impressive. It's this very good-looking, very well-dressed guy wearing a million-dollar suit, looking like a movie star, and then you read his uh, bio. His bio is um, uh, Dr. So-and-so had his bachelor's from Harvard, his PhD from Harvard, is in charge of homeless policy for the United States government. Last year, he won an Oscar for a documentary he made on homelessness, and that's just the beginning. It just keeps on going and going, and I'm thinking, and then I have to talk after this guy. And, okay, but it was like, um, it was like, real, it was, uh, I was just going to be the comic relief, you know? It was like, so, um, fine. He gets up. He spoke before me. And the opening words of his talk was so shocking that you almost saw 400 people collectively falling off their chair. Here's his opening words. He said, when I was 11 years old, in front of me, my father, in a coked up rage, killed my mother and then killed himself. He said, I was an only child. And um, I knew the foster care system was about to fall into the hands of the foster care system. I knew that it was a terrible place to grow up, and I run away. So I looked older than my age, and I spent the next two years going from homeless shelter to homeless shelter, leading a meaningless, horrific existence. He said it was horrific. I was lonely, I was traumatized, I had nobody to talk to. It was beyond belief in terms of how how, um, how difficult those and lonely those two years were. So then, come to a shelter in Midtown Manhattan, and I hear four words that forever changed my life, and it's the reason I'm here today. So right away, okay, four, 400 pens come up. <laughs> 400 pieces of paper come out, and it says, everybody, put your pens away. It wasn't the words. It was how they were spoken. So I come into a shelter, and the director of the shelter looks at me, looks at me right in the eye, right? Eye to eye, heart to heart, puts his arm around me, and he <coughs> says, how are you doing? How are you doing? 
he said he meant it. He re- I saw he really wanted to know. And I figured I was going to trust him. I started telling him. And I started talking to him. And I started sharing my story with him. And the more I talked, the more I needed to talk. And the more I felt like I finally had somebody who I could trust to tell what happened. And he said the next couple of months, I spent countless hours with him telling him my story. And after a couple of months of this, he realized I was a pretty smart guy and he got me a full scholarship to the Dalton School, leading private school in Manhattan. From there, I got the full scholarship to Harvard undergraduate and, and, and graduate program. He said, it all came from those four words. And that's the message I want to leave you with in terms of the answer. The answer is ultimately, you have the answer, okay, regardless of the challenges of the parents. You know, I, I know by reputation and just from spending a drop of time with you while well, you're caring people, you're here on a Thursday night, okay? Um, that says a lot, okay? Um, and um, ultimately, you spend a life of doing the equivalent of what that, that shelter director, of saying, how are you doing? And with that, there's a beautiful Hebrew saying, ma'at min ha'or harbe min Little sparks of light push away a lot of darkness. And that's what you will do for a living. You're lighting up the kids' soul, souls. They may be a little bit different than previous generations. And they may have a hard time because we're in an in-between time. I don't think we've fully caught up yet to some of the changes in society. We're going to get there. We're definitely going to get there. You're going to figure it out, okay? And your students will figure it out. And um, the next generation will figure it out. But hopefully we'll be able to spend the next couple of days thinking together. And um, thank you so much for coming. Okay? Thank you.